Welcome back to Read Into Something. Thanks for joining us if you haven't listened before. We're about to start another fun podcast episode brought to you by the Stone County Library inside Alice's office at the Crane Branch. As always, I'm Alice, the branch manager. At my side is Winky, my mostly silent but intuitive co-host and the library mascot. Do the thing, Wink. (laughs) Today we're hitting rewind and getting back into some Missouri history. We touched on early Missouri life and expansion into what was then the West. It's time to get on our marching boots and talk about what went on during the Civil War and how it affected the 24th state in the Union. Once again, happy birthday, Missouri. Or almost happy birthday. We've still got a couple of months to go. I promise I won't play the birthday song again until we get to the actual day, or as close as I can, anyhow. When we left off, Lewis and Clark had journeyed across the country, returned home with all kinds of exciting finds, and we stopped right as William Clark passed away in St. Louis in 1838. We have to back up a bit to when the territorial legislature in Missouri filed to become a state. Please excuse the crunching because Winky's having a snack. It's November 1818. Petitions have been circulating for two years throughout the territory in hopes that with enough signatures, the high-ups in Washington, D.C. will take statehood into consideration. The problem with gaining statehood was the slavery issue. Abolitionists had successfully phased out slavery in the northern states. They didn't want to admit Missouri as a slave state, but they were willing to do so if they could also phase it out over 50 years, if there could be no more introductions of slaves from other states, and on the condition that slaves were set free after they turned 25. The House passed the measure, but it failed in the Senate. After much debate in 1820, the government settled on the Missouri Compromise. The main detail was that slavery couldn't expand into the Plains Territory. There was no slavery above the 3630 parallel. That meant what would later become Kansas and Dakota territories. At the time, what would become Oklahoma and Texas were still under Spanish influence. Part of the trouble was due to having an equal number of slave states and free states. With the admission of Missouri, there would be 12 slave states versus 11 free states. One of the conditions of adding Missouri as a state was that Maine had to be granted the same right, although it would be a free state. Maine was admitted in 1820, with Missouri to follow in 1821. It became the first state west of the Mississippi River. Both before and after statehood was achieved, people flooded into Missouri, driving the Indians out and overwhelming the mostly French-speaking first settlers. The areas around the Missouri River made excellent farmland that attracted the wealthy and primarily slaveholding families from the South. Waterways were developed to connect the Great Lakes to the Mississippi River, and steamboats became common in the 1820s, taking much less time than its predecessor, the keelboat, to carry goods up the rivers. In 1845, St. Louis was connected to the east with telegraph lines. Colleges and banks were forming in the state, People were a mixture of Southern politicians, Irish Catholic immigrants, Scots, and Germans. You may recall the popular game, the Oregon Trail. Jumping off points in Missouri were St. Louis, Independence, and St. Joseph. They were the last towns many pioneers would see for hundreds of miles. Say, what do you call a cow with no legs? Ground beef. (laughs) Missouri was moving up in the world, in some ways. In others, the issue of slavery was divisive. Many slave owners claim their treatment of the people they bought and sold was less abusive than the way the owners of the southern plantations had handled things. Here, instead of overseers, most slaves and owners worked side by side. 
The problem remained that slavery seemed necessary for farming families to plant and bring in crops. In many of the free northern states, businesses were textile, not agricultural. Fairly often, a black person who had previously lived in a free state was able to appeal to the courts and regain their freedom. This was subject to that person not getting captured by slave traders again, hence the push to abolish slavery. However, in some cases, like Dred Scott v. Sanford, a case notorious for the harsh treatment of freed slaves, when Judge Taney made his ruling, he declared Dred and his wife were no longer free. It made no difference that they had lived in a free state for over three years. One of the conditions in which they could gain their freedom. However, there was no such rule in the South. Taney and his fellow judges also ruled that no colored person was eligible to claim U.S. citizenship. This broke the Missouri Compromise and kept Congress from being able to rule on territories that wanted to become states. It was a 10-year battle that only heightened the tensions between the North and the South. However, it was also the case that directed Abraham Lincoln to write the Emancipation Proclamation and ratify the Constitution. During that time, the Underground Railroad was running in parts of Missouri. One of the names you might recognize from history is John Brown, leader of a particularly violent band of abolitionists. It led to the term Bleeding Kansas, as pro-slavery men flocked to Kansas to illegally vote for it, and the abolitionists fought back. This, of course, ended in bloodshed on both sides of the border. An interesting movie centered around the border wars and William Contrell's raid on Lawrence is called Ride with the Devil, starring Tobey Maguire and Skeet Ulrich. It was released in 1999 and based off of Missouri author Daniel Woodrail's novel A Woe to Live On. It's about a young man named Jake whose parents were German immigrants, but he rides for the bushwhackers with another young man who he was raised beside. They're seeking revenge for the death of his friend's father and get mixed in with the bushwhackers, whose loyalty belongs to the South due to the thoughts that they need slaves to farm their lands. It's set in the winter before the raid on Lawrence, and as the plot moves along, Jake begins to question his loyalties after the death of his friend. He also befriends a black man named Holt, who is a freed slave, but tags along with the bushwhackers and his former master. Holt proves himself capable in battle, and Jake begins to think of him as more a person than a slave. They stick together until the end of the movie. To back up just a hair, in Neosho, Missouri, not too terribly far from the Kansas border, in 1861, October, rebel legislature was brought up in the courthouse. C.F. Jackson, governor of Missouri, declared secession. With this proclamation, he set up provisional government, legislature, and a capital. He and his followers declared it was because of various outrages against the state and the Union overthrowing their government. However, because Jackson was only able to procure votes to secede from the Confederate Congress, the legislature truly meant nothing. Things were so divided between Missouri inhabitants, those for the Union moved north toward Springfield, and those who wished to be part of the Confederacy hunkered down on their own lands, which in turn led to much of the Bushwhacker and Jayhawker fighting. As General Sterling Price marched across Missouri, intending to take it as a Confederate state, people like Jesse James rose to fame. News to me, Frank James fought at the Battle of Wilson's Creek, the first trans-Mississippi area of the war. However, Frank returned home to Liberty, Missouri after catching the measles. He was sworn not to fight against the Union again, but in 1863 continued riding with his brother and other gang members following William Quantrill. They stole headlines across the nation as they robbed trains, banks, and stagecoaches. Despite some of the brutality of the crimes, the James gang had the sympathy of the people especially after the Union militia attacked the James home in 1861. Following the raid on Lawrence, Jesse joined the Bushwhackers. In 1864, they were riding with Bloody Bill Anderson and were involved in a massacre where they ambushed a Union train and killed more than 100 soldiers. The family was forced out of the state by Union militia, ordered to go south, 
but they moved to Nebraska Territory instead. Around 1864, the brothers separated. When Jesse returned to Missouri in the spring of 1865, he was wounded trying to surrender to Union troops. A week later, nearly dead from his encounter, Jesse swore allegiance to the United States. Frank was in Kentucky and surrendered in July. Because of their parts in the border wars, the Jameses were outcast among the community. They claimed it was impossible for them to return to a life of farming because their neighbors harassed them and they couldn't go outside unarmed. Jesse's first robbery was a bank in Gallatin, Missouri. Two masked men shot another man and stole a small box. One of the robbers' mounts spooked, and the two rode away on one horse. The horse left behind was identified as a racehorse known to belong to Jesse. The man who was shot was at first thought to be Samuel Cox, who shot Bloody Bill Anderson. His identity was revealed to be another man altogether. Frank and Jesse were indicted to stand for murder, but Jesse petitioned the governor and would only turn himself in if he thought he could get a fair trial. Apparently, that didn't come to pass. It's thought that Jesse participated in 19 robberies. He and Frank denied involvement in some of the crimes and promised to turn themselves in if a fair trial could be had. Clearly, they had no intentions of doing that. Their gang numbers varied at times because some of the members were caught and hanged. Then more were recruited to join. In 1869, Jesse was labeled as an outlaw. The governor put up a reward for his capture. John Newman Edwards, an ex-Confederate journalist, began publishing letters from Jesse that claimed his innocence. Together with the letters and Edwards' writing, Jesse began to look more like a rebel with a cause, denouncing the Republican Reconstruction, which had stripped away anyone who fought for the South the right to vote or have an opinion on the way things were running in the state. Despite attacking a train dressed in KKK outfits, the James Younger gang gained a reputation for being like Robin Hood. There's no evidence that any money they ever stole was given to the less fortunate. After a failed robbery in 1876, the James Younger gang was broken up due to several members being captured or killed. The Youngers went to jail. The Jameses fled to Missouri. Although Frank and Jesse turned up again in Tennessee and Frank started leading a more civilized life, Jesse remained restless. He formed another gang, but he was often suspicious of the members, who were more likely to fight with each other than focus on robbing anyone. Frank did rejoin the group, and they robbed more places in the South. Tennessean authorities began noticing them, so once again, the brothers made their way to Missouri. Because the gang was down to only them, it seemed like turning away from crime was the best thing they could do. Frank moved to Virginia. Jesse took his family to St. Joseph. In April of 1882, Jesse, holed up with Charlie and Bob Ford, discovered one of his old gang members had confessed to participating in a murder. He wasn't pleased that the Fords hadn't informed him, and Bob later said he believed Jesse had the idea they were going to turn him in. Bob had been in touch with the governor in exchange for Jesse. He was to receive the reward and be pardoned from the crimes he'd committed as a short-term member of the gang. Although Jesse might have suspected the brothers of turning on him, the morning of his murder before a planned bank robbery in Platte City, Jesse laid down his revolvers. He went to straighten a picture on a wall and Bob shot him in the back of the head. The irony, and probably unjust reward here, is that Bob and Charlie turned themselves in. They were indicted for murder and sentenced to hang. The same day, the governor pardoned them. Needless to say, they left for Missouri. Jesse's body was put on display in St. Joseph, and people came in droves to see what was left of the outlaw. Some believed what Bob had done was outright murder. Others believed Jesse needed to be stopped. The Fords would go on to reenact the shooting, touring around the country. Charlie later committed suicide after getting tuberculosis. Bob opened a bar in Colorado. And in 1892, Edward O'Kelly walked into Bob's bar with a shotgun, uttered, Hello, Bob, and shot Bob where he stood. 
O'Kelly was sentenced to life in prison, but was released thanks to a petition. The governor of Colorado later pardoned him. There were, of course, rumors that the body so many people went to see in St. Joe wasn't Jesse's. Never mind that it had Jesse's scars, including the partially missing finger he accidentally shot off. In 1995, the body buried in Kearney, Missouri, was dug up and DNA compared to one of his living female relatives. It was consistent, making it true that Bob had murdered Jesse. To break up a dark section, let's have a joke. Three bank robbers, a redhead, a brunette, and a blonde, were trying to evade the police when they came across a farm. Being short on time and options, they all decided to hide in the barn. The redhead hides near the horses, the brunette hides near the cows, and the blonde hides in a pile of potatoes. When the police come to search the barn, first they come to the horse stables. The redhead lets out a hefty neigh, the cops are convinced that the horses are indeed alone, and the redhead escapes. The police search the cow pens. The brunette saw the first robber had done and belted out a deep moo. The cops are again convinced, and the brunette is able to escape. The police finally come to where the potatoes are stored. The blonde, seeing how easily the other two had gotten away, sings, Potato! Okay, so to wrap up for today, let's talk about some Missouri authors. Many of them you know and love already. The most obvious are Mark Twain and Laura Ingalls Wilder. In case you've been living under a rock, Twain is famous for Tom Sawyer and the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. If I have to be honest, I'm not a fan of either one of those. I was forced, I mean, I took a class in college that had a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court on the syllabus. It wasn't the worst book I ever read. Twain was born in Florida, Missouri and grew up in Hannibal. Laura Ingalls, the plucky little pioneer girl that many generations of girls and boys are familiar with, wasn't born in Missouri. She was from Wisconsin, but had a home in Mansfield, Missouri. You can go there today and have a tour of it. I was enamored with Laura's adventures no matter where Paul moved them to. Little House on the Prairie is definitely a timeless classic series. I didn't know that T.S. Eliot was born in Missouri. I thought he was an Englishman, but apparently he only moved there. He penned a work in 1939 called Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. Can you guess what famous Broadway play is based off of it? Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats. I heard that you're better off not watching the horror show of a movie that came out in 2020. How about Janet Daly? She was a staple in my household when I was a teenager. Who could get enough of her romance novels? Not us, I guess. She was originally from Council Bluffs, Iowa, but she and her husband moved to Branson, Missouri in 1978. I once got to see her house on the shores of Lake Tanicomo while taking a boating tour. She died in 2013, but wrote 90 novels. 21 of them made the New York Times bestseller list. Maya Angelou was born in St. Louis. She wrote a dozen prose and poetry books, most famous for I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, about her childhood in Arkansas. After abuse from her mother's boyfriend, his subsequent jailing, then murder, she was mute for five years, believing that her voice had killed him. The silence only enhanced her love for literature, and it's no wonder that she became such a powerful writer. Jim Butcher from Independence, Missouri, is the author of a pretty amusing fantasy series called The Dresden Files. It's about a wizard named Harry. Yes, another Harry. I had the pleasure of meeting his wife, who's also an author. Her name is Sharon K. Butcher. She wrote a contemporary romance series set in the Ozarks. Lovely lady and very funny. Who can forget Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl? I was deeply disturbed by the main character, Amy Dunn's twisted, crazy mind, and how she made it look as though her husband had killed her. I haven't had the courage to read anything else by Gillian. A native of Kansas City, Missouri, she's a decorated author with a nomination for a Golden Globe Writers Guild of America Award, and a BAFTA. There are others, of course, but we're going to leave off there. 
There's still a ton of Missouri history to go over, but on the next episode, I'm going to review a movie I haven't seen in years. I remember liking it, but I find that with age comes taste. We'll see you next time. Don't forget to visit the Stone County Library Facebook page, where you can stay up to date on news, activities, and interact with other library patrons. And please visit the podcast Twitter page. Come find us at twitter.com slash podcast for podcast updates, pictures of Winky, fun facts, and book-related memes. And check out our webpage at podpage.com slash read-into-something. Guess what? We now have an Instagram account, too. Instagram.com slash podcast. It's almost too easy. Once again, thanks for joining us. Don't forget, if you like the show, please leave us a rating or a review. It means a lot to us. Thanks. Until then, Allison Winky signing off. Disclaimer, views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to Allison, not necessarily to her employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual.